Good morning. You know, it's not going to be too much longer where I don't have to preach to a camera anymore. I can actually preach to faces. I can see you hopefully smiling and nodding your head along and and we get to all be together. It's going to be a great day. But for now, we still utilize the resource of having virtual worship and that's a good thing, but I'm so ready to be back together. I know you are as well. This morning, we're looking at Jesus as a friend. You know, it reminds me of the story of Joseph Scriven. Joseph Scriven was 25 years of age when he met the love of his life. He was a very talented poet living in Ireland, and Joseph was excited to begin life with his soon-to-be bride. But sadly, the two would never exchange vows. You see, the night before their wedding, Joseph's fiancée drowned. As you can imagine, Joseph was heartbroken. It took such a toll on him that he decided a change of scenery would probably be best. And so he left Ireland for Canada. And after some time had passed, Joseph met another woman, a beautiful woman by the name of Eliza. And they got engaged. Soon they would be married, but again, tragedy struck. Before the wedding, Eliza was stricken with pneumonia and passed away. And it was during this time that Joseph also learned that his mother back in Ireland had fallen ill. And so, amid the tragedy of two loves lost and his mother being sick, Joseph wrote a poem. The name of that poem was Pray Without Singing. And it read in part like this. What a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear, And what a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. And although Scriven never intended to publish this poem, a man by the name of Charles Crozat Converse got a hold of it. He renamed it and set it to music. Joseph Scriven died at the age of 66. Some sources say that he drowned. Others said that he took his own life. Either way, what we find is that Joseph Scriven died a very depressed man. We also find this poem that he wrote amid the depression and difficulty that he was dealing with, the anguish that was going on in his life. He wrote this poem while his mother was ill after losing two fiancés, not while celebrating the birth of a child, not while celebrating a marriage, not while celebrating financial gain. He wrote the words, what a friend we have in Jesus, while enduring his own personal hell. On the night before his death, Jesus gathered with his disciples one last time. In an effort to prepare them for the next day and beyond, Jesus made many profound statements. But it's, it's his words in John chapter 15 that I want to zero in on for a few moments. Notice what is written in verses 12 through 17. It says, this is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves for the slave does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends For all things that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. 
you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give it to you. This I command you, that you love one another. How many of you have ever been unfriended on social media? It happened to me recently. I was looking for a friend in my friends list. I couldn't find them. I typed in their name in the search, still couldn't find them. So I looked them up in the general search on Facebook and found out they were no longer my friend. I don't know what happened. Maybe it was too many of the uh, cute kitten posts. Maybe it was uh, a political rant. Maybe it was, you know, uh, too many posts about how great my kids are. No, actually, that's a reason I would unfriend you. That's not really my motive on Facebook. We don't like to be unfriended whether in the virtual world or in the real world. In January of 2009, Burger King had an ad campaign in which they challenged Facebook users to unfriend 10 of their friends. If they did so, Burger King would send them a coupon for a free Whopper. When you unfriended a person, Burger King would send a notification to that friend that you unfriended saying that you had been unfriended for a delicious hamburger. And the idea of the ad campaign was that those who were unfriended would think, wow, it must be a good burger if I'm being unfriended for it. But the campaign worked too well. And Burger King was on the hook for thousands of Whoppers. And as a result, the campaign had to be discontinued. It doesn't take much for us to unfriend somebody. But in the real world, the value of friendship has been greatly diminished in our culture. If nothing else, the concept has taken on a skewed meaning. I don't know how many friends I have on Facebook, but it is safe to say that not all of them would fit the biblical description of a friend. Many of them I don't even know or interact with on a regular basis. I think to get the full picture of what Jesus was saying in John chapter 15, to get the full magnitude behind the words of Joseph Scriven's poem that was later turned into that hymn, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. To understand all that, I think you have to go back. Go back to the Old Testament. And I know that we do this a lot. We've done this a lot lately, but that's kind of the whole point of this series this year is to make the connection Jesus in the new back to the old. Understanding that the old sets us up for the new. So we go back to a friendship that we see in the Old Testament, one between David and Jonathan. Now you remember the circumstances surrounding David and Jonathan's friendship. Jonathan was the son of Saul. Saul hated David. David had become Saul's sworn enemy. Saul chased after David and sought to kill him. And you think about the predicament that this put Jonathan in. He was caught between a rock and a hard place. However, Jonathan knew what was right. He warned and protected David from the wrath of his father. And you think, how many young men would do that? You would think at the very least, even if the young man knew that his father was wrong, he would do everything he could to defend him. But Jonathan was true to his friendship and the covenant that he made with David, even though his father was the enemy. Jonathan protected David. And looked out for his friend, which greatly angered his father. Jonathan knew his father was wrong, though. He knew the choices he were making were were evil. Kinship with his father did not mean more than honoring God and doing what was right. And what was right in this situation was protecting his friend. I want you to notice 1 Samuel chapter 20 and verse 13. It says, If it please my father to do you harm, May the Lord do so to Jonathan and more also, if I do not make it known to you and send you away, that you may go in safety. And may the Lord be with you as he has been 
with my father. When David faced the coldness of Saul, he needed the warmth of a dear friend. And he found that in Jonathan. And Jonathan promises to look out for David. He says these words, If I'm still alive, will you not show me the loving kindness of the Lord that I may not die? You shall not cut off your loving kindness from my house forever, not even when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. Now you have to understand that in this day and time, it was customary for the new king to exile or even kill off any kin from the old regime. This eliminated any threat of the former king's kin seeking the throne. Part of the covenant between David and Jonathan involved David showing grace and mercy to his friend. This hardly needed to be said, but by having David reaffirm the oath, he is encouraging him that God has promised to raise David to the throne. Jonathan wanted David to remember the Lord's promise, even when all seemed lost. David was not alone. Jonathan was with him, and God was with him as well. The Lord would show David loving kindness, and David would never forget that. David and Jonathan were loyal to one another through thick and thin to the very end. Even after Jonathan is dead and gone, David stays true to the covenant by seeking out a relative of Jonathan to show loving kindness. And he finds a man by the name of Mephibosheth, one who was related to Jonathan, and he brings him in and gives him a place at his table. He doesn't seek to do harm for him, no, his sole purpose for seeking him out was to show loving kindness, to be true to the covenant, because a true friend always has a place for you at his table. One more thing I want to point out here. Look at 1 Samuel chapter 18 and verse 4. It reads, Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David with his armor, including his sword and his bow and his belt. Understand what's happening here by, by stripping himself of his robe and giving it to David, along with his armor and his sword and his bow and his belt, Jonathan is engaging in more than just a nice gesture. The removal of the robe symbolized the kingdom. The robe itself symbolized the kingdom. The removal of it was Jonathan saying, I step aside, I, I let you have the throne. Jonathan was saying, Though I'm the potential heir to the Father's throne, I'm letting you have it. By giving David his robe, he was literally giving up his place as king. He was sacrificing his future for David. He was a loyal friend to the end. But more importantly, Jonathan was loyal to God and to his plan. Have you ever stood aside so that someone else could have the spotlight? That's not easy for us to do. It's difficult for us to stand aside and let someone else receive what we think is rightfully ours. We don't like sharing the spotlight. We don't much like it when someone else gets the credit that we think is due us. But Jonathan's actions were completely and totally unselfish. They show us the meaning of true friendship or the willingness to put yourself second, to humbly give of yourself for the good of another. That is a true friend, one who is willing to give themselves for the betterment of the other person. David and Jonathan had a foreshadowing friendship. Do you see it? Notice how these two and their interaction and their relationship 
relate to what Jesus said in John chapter 15. You have David who points forward to Jesus as king, and you have Jonathan who points forward to all who would follow the king as his friends. Jonathan was a friend to David, and yet David was Israel's anointed king. When David called on Jonathan to demonstrate faithfulness, he responded with, with whatever you say, I will do. Jonathan and David foreshadow this king and confidant relationship. Jesus is king, but he's also a friend. We are the Jonathans in that we show our love and loyalty to royalty. The king who sits on a throne gives us a place at his table. It would be privilege enough to merely be servants, but we're more than that. We're friends with the king. Now, it should be noted that there are two hazards here that we need to be aware of. One is emphasizing companionship at the expense of kingship, and the other is emphasizing kingship at the expense of companionship. There is a balance here. You know, at the Last Supper, we see that John was reclining on Jesus' chest. However, years later, when John saw Jesus in all his glory, he fell down in front of him like a dead man. Notice the language of John 15 again. It says, This is my commandment, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. If you do what I command you, the humanity of Jesus doesn't supersede his divinity. Just because he is a friend doesn't mean that he is not also Lord. Just because he's a friend doesn't mean that we can lower him down in status. So a t-shirt like this one wouldn't be an accurate representation of Jesus being our friend. I'm not judging you if you have one of these t-shirts. I'm simply saying that when it comes to Jesus being a friend, it's not so much pal or homeboy or chum or buddy. That's not really the image of friendship that's being conveyed here. Actually, the image of friendship that's being conveyed is much deeper and richer. Think about the condescension of Jesus. Not that he was condescending toward us, but that he condescended to us. As Paul says, he emptied himself. The master of the universe humbled himself by becoming a bondservant. He gave his message of salvation. He voluntarily gave his life on a cruel cross. The king submitted himself to washing feet. He allowed himself to be mocked and ridiculed and killed. And he did all of this for people who were not his friends. You know, we could understand a mother laying down her life for her child. We could understand a father stepping in front of a bullet for his son. That would certainly make front page news. But someone praying for the well-being and the spiritual welfare of the people who were killing him? I mean, that doesn't seem right. People who had a hand in killing Jesus are the people that Jesus was dying for? That's Jesus, a friend to all, even those who didn't much like him. You see, Jesus as our friend doesn't minimize his glory. In fact, it magnifies it. Look with me at the words of Paul in Ephesians 1. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. 
Only grace can explain the king welcoming us as his friends. You may be close with your boy, your buddy, your pal, or your homeboy, but friendship with Jesus is predicated upon giving my life to the one who laid down his life for me. I want you to think about something else for a few moments. Look with me at John chapter 2. And beginning in verse 1, it says, On the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there, and both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. Why did Jesus go to the wedding? Ever thought about that? Why did he go? Well, verse 2 tells us that he was invited. But why? Now, at this point, Jesus had not attained rock star status it wasn't because he was performing miracles right and left. As far as we know, this was his first miracle, his first recorded one anyway. It wasn't because he was the Messiah. I mean, that identity really wasn't confirmed as of yet. Maybe he was invited because he was just an ordinary person that the ordinary people in this little town enjoyed being around. I would want Jesus at my party, wouldn't you? I mean, he's exactly the kind of person I'd want to hang out with. He was holy, but not holier than thou. He was almighty, but he didn't act all high and mighty. He knew everything, and yet he went and listened to the teaching in the synagogue. He could have strutted around all proud and big-headed, but he, he didn't. Even though he uh, didn't need money, he still worked as a carpenter. And on his shoulders rested the responsibility of redeeming creation. Yet he walked 90 miles from Jericho to Cana to attend a wedding. And he went the distance for us. He came from heaven to earth and then went to the cross to bridge the gap between us and God. God wants to be your friend. I know that sounds a little too much like, you know, Mr. Rogers kind of fluff and it's heartwarming but we can't get lost in all the syrup God wants to be your friend but but think about this for a moment remember John chapter 1 starting in verse 1 it says in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God he was in the beginning with God all things came into being through him and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being in him was life and the life was the light of men Remember John 1 and 14? And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. That's who wants to be your friend. That's the Jesus who wants to be our friend, the one who is the Word of God, who came down from heaven and became flesh. That's who wants to be your friend. Wrap, wrap your minds around that for a few moments, and I can, I, I, can, I can give you a second if you need to. Think about the magnitude of that. Remember the context of Jesus' words in John 15. What's it about? What's the theme of John 15? Hopefully you've been paying attention for the last few weeks. We've talked about the theme of John chapter 15 is relationship. It's not 
just about baptism or repentance. It's not all about crossing every T and dotting every I. Yes, baptism and, and repentance are necessary and essential. And yes, obedience is crucial, but all of this boils down to relationship. Are you close to God? That's really what it's all about. Go back to the Old Testament, to the prophet Jeremiah who said, Thus says the Lord, let not a wise man boast of his wisdom, and let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast of this that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth, for I delight in these things, declares the Lord. If we're going to boast about anything, then let it be a boasting about knowing God, being in relationship with Him, knowing who God is and delighting in Him. Paul said it this way, More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ and may be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know Him and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. That I may know him, Paul says. In the end, that was the only thing that mattered to Paul because that was the most important thing, knowing Jesus, knowing the one that he followed, his life, his death, his sufferings, his resurrection, all of it. Paul says, I want to know every single bit of it. Why? so that I can have the same resurrection, so I can be with him for all eternity. You know, friendships are seasonal, aren't they? Depending on the season of your life, you probably have different friends. You had certain friends in elementary school. Maybe you had a few different friends in high school. You get to college, you make a new friend group. You get older and, and, and you have kids and, and you make new friends. Depending on the station in life, our friends change. But Jesus is a lifetime friend. This friendship is perpetual and it's eternal. Like we said a few weeks ago, when discussing Jesus as the, divine, as the vine and the branches, it's all about connectivity. Abide in me. That's what it's all about. Being close to Jesus, abiding in him. It's being a Caleb. You know, in Joshua chapter 14 and verse 9, it says that Caleb followed the Lord fully. The fact that Caleb followed the Lord fully is reiterated six times in the Old Testament. Followed the Lord fully or wholly followed the Lord is a phrase that literally means to close the gap. It's a phrase that is used in reference to a hunter closing in on his prey. In reference to Caleb, it meant that he kept the gap between him and God, the distance between him and God at a minimum. The distance was minimal. I, I can remember when my kids were smaller, I'd be walking, they'd be following me, and inevitably one of them would step on my heel to where I'd walk out of my shoe, and I'd whip my head around and say, would you get off my heels? But truthfully, as disciples, that's how it should be. We should be right on the heels of Jesus, or as one of our members, Forrest McCann, likes to say, the goal is to follow Jesus so closely that the dust he kicks up covers you. Remember what a disciple is. A disciple is a Christ follower. He's a learner. And the goal of a disciple in the first century was to be just like your teacher. So as we follow the rabbi Jesus, we are striving to be his clone. We are striving to be like him in every way. This is about connectivity. It's about identity. 
It's about being as close as possible. There's a story that is told of a man in Africa who returned to his home one day after a hard day's work, and he walks into his little home, and he he sees a, a huge python lying on the floor. Well, he immediately runs out to his truck, and he gets his gun, but he's only got one bullet. No more ammunition, and so he's going to have to make this shot count. And so he comes in, and he takes careful aim, and he shoots the python in the head. It was, it was a kill shot, but that didn't stop the python from, from you know, slapping around and knocking things off the wall. Before it died, it made a mess. And so the man became scared, and he went out of his home, and he, he waited outside, and he could hear clanging and banging. And, and finally, there was silence, and he came back in, and the python was dead on the floor. But he had done a lot of damage. In the last moments of his life, he had torn up the guy's home. In his dying moments, the python unleashed all its wrath on everything in sight. My friend, Satan has already been mortally wounded. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ was the kill shot. But the devil is still thrashing around, and sometimes he smashes into us. And we may struggle, we may stumble, but in the end, we have victory if we have Jesus. And so I leave you with this question this morning. Are you a friend of Jesus?